Find your feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast. My name is obviously Hanny Alston and I've been the host of this podcast for around the last 12 months. Today I'm excited to be introducing to you Juliana Lisboa. From Brazil to Sydney to Tasmania, she now calls my island state her home too. Juliana has very strong interests in nutrition, which have evolved over numerous years. Originally, she had a very strong focus with diabetics, but more recently has begun to work more and more with athletes and quite elite athletes too, some being members of the Australian CrossFit team. Juliana's focus is very much about not what your body looks like, but how it can perform. And she sees whilst she sees that whilst exercise can be the tools to get you towards your goals, that nutrition is very much the cement and bricks that hold you strong. Juliana, uh, if you're interested in her background qualifications, is an accredited practicing dietitian and sports dietitian and originally started with a Bachelor of Biological Science and then went on to do a Master's of Nutrition and Dietetics, working in private practice since 2010. But she doesn't get, uh, she doesn't sit still for very long because more recently she attained a postgraduate diploma in sports nutrition with the International Olympic Committee and is now studying a bachelor in psychology too because she's become very, very fascinated in the link between the emotional and intellectual side of eating versus the actual physical eating itself. I was really interested to sit down with Juliana really to provide a big overview or like almost like a superficial look at nutrition on the whole. I feel like there were so many more angles that I'd like to explore with her and I'm really hoping that in the near future we can sit down together to really explore the depths of the emotional side of nutrition. But I won't go into any more detail now. I'll let you get to know Juliana through the podcast. But I would just like to say a huge thanks to the team at Find Your Feet who've been supporting me to provide this podcast to everyone for free. We're really grateful to all of you who have been reaching out and utilising their expertise at Find Your Feet for all things trail running and right through to hiking, adventure and travel. All our members, when you sign up online, get a 10% off every single order at Find Your Feet. So it's really worth jumping onto the Find Your Feet website, www.findyourfeet.com.au, and uh, being able to access that membership discount. I just also want to let you know that uh, as part of my work that I do, I've been really enjoying delivering tours to the Australian and broader community uh, since about 2014. The tours, gosh, now we must have done well over 25 tours, but this year we have a few still booking. I just want to let you know that we have one place available that has, or one place has become available on the Find Your Feet tour to Japan, and also one space has become available on the Find Your Feet tour to the French Pyrenees. These tours go in September and August respectively and those places became available because a couple of people had to pull off due to family reasons. There is also tours, uh, a tour departing for the Overland Track, which is an extreme <laughs> advanced trail running tour where you'll be running 65 kilometres through the Overland Track in the centre of Tasmanian mountains uh, in a day. 
it's a four-day tour and that will be departing in November, very end of November. So if you're interested in any of these trips, just reach out to me on social media or you can drop me an email through my website or to tours at findyourfeet.com.au. That's tours at findyourfeet.com.au. Alrighty, no more from me. Let's jump right into the podcast with Juliana. Juliana, thank you for sitting down with me today and I'm really excited that finally we've got this discussion off the ground. No worries, my pleasure. Yeah, Um, Juliana, you're obviously working as a dietitian now in Hobart, originally Brazilian born, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And came to Tasmania for the lifestyle. Exactly. Fantastic. It is really good to have you here and I feel like we're starting to slowly get this suite of really great uh, professionals coming into Hobart and it's great to see that people are starting to work together as well. So I'm really interested in your story partly because you have the most phenomenal CV (laughs) in the industry. Uh, So just to understand and maybe for clarification, your background was uh, in the biological sciences yeah, and then right. you mastered in nutrition yes nutrition dietetics yeah yeah right and then eventually went on and did your uh postgraduate diploma of sports nutrition with the international olympic committee yeah yeah that's it and now you're doing a bachelor of psychology <laughs> <laughs> i am <laughs> right i'm really curious to know what brought you into this wellness pathway and and why you've chosen to go on that journey to where you are right now doing psychology as well yeah um i mean i think it's every little part of your experience sort of adds up to it um you know growing up i get got into adventure racing and for me that was um, i've always been interested in nutrition before but doing adventure racing was one of those things that like, okay, I need to carry my food. And it has to be, you know, I can't keep it in the fridge and it has to be light enough. And I wasn't a very good adventure racer, I have to say. So some of those races that people were finishing in three hours, I was finishing in 12. So my food had to carry me over for 12 hours. Um, and that that was sort of the beginning of the challenges there of understanding you know, what is it that you need and how you can pack that into a way that you can tolerate and enjoy as you're training. Excellent. So when did the pathway first start for you? Like how long, how long was it ago that you began the biological sciences and then got into that nutritional element? Yeah, so I started um, biology got to uni when I was 17, 2002, I think, Um, and as I got to uni, that's when I started um, adventure racing, to kind of one thing led to another, I thought, well, this biology thing here is really nice, and I really enjoy everything that I'm learning, but how is it that I can apply um, on a day-to-day basis, and that's when nutrition came to my head, I said, well, obviously, that's the way that I can use that sort of science knowledge um, and put it into a really practical um, thing to do with um, with, yeah, with helping people that way. And along the way, I think that's where 
um, the frustrations kind of started to, to appear in terms of, okay, well, it's not just knowing what to carry uh, in your backpack, but what if you can't tolerate that uh, particular food that it's really easy to take or, um, you know, the psychological parts of do you really want to do that or not and how hard it is to make changes if you've already been doing in a way. Um, yeah. So tell me a bit more about that. Obviously, psychology is like something that you've started to work on more recently. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself going? Like, where do you where do you want to be as Julianne and say in five years' time in your profession? Oh, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know exactly where I want to be, and um, you know, if I look back five years ago, I didn't know either. Um, but I think that's part of the beauty of you know, the, the industry or yeah, it's just learning about it and and fine-tuning as you need to. So when I started with nutrition, I didn't think that psychology was, was that important. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, if I um, know exactly what people need to eat, then that's it, problem solved. And I honestly went to my master's thinking that I was going to learn the perfect diet. I thought that I was going to go to uni and they were just going to tell me, okay, well, so here it is, um, the secret (laughs) to a happy life. And the more you learn about it, the more it, it becomes clear that there is no perfect diet. And also, the more you learn that everyone is different and the barriers for that diet that is going to work for them um, are very different and you need to work with them to, to kind of go around those barriers or to completely destroy them or what is that you're going to do to move forward. So as I went along with nutrition, that's when I realized that psychology was becoming more and more and more important in that way. And you, product, you work a lot with athletes these days or people who are have a – a healthy lifestyle focus healthy yeah. I don't like the word in some ways I don't like the word healthy because it, it sets up so many connotations but but they're focused on their wellness mm-hmm. and are looking to optimize their wellness yeah or bringing people into that healthier state you've also worked with the CrossFit teams was that was that the CrossFit the national CrossFit team that you were working with for a period of time um I worked with um a group of CrossFit athletes in Sydney that were going into the CrossFit Games. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I find like working in that athletic world as well that there's a lot of um, schools of thought, fads, movements that are coming through that are promoted as being this can help your athletic performance or this can take you to the epitome of health Mm -hmm. Uh, and I could name lots at the moment but I'm curious to know when when you've worked with the athletes and particularly in the CrossFit world you know what did you learn about optimizing diet for athletic performance yeah that's a great question and one point there that you made in terms of health and what is health and I think that's that's sort of where you need to start questioning things because there's no, again, the same way there's no one perfect diet. Health can mean different things for different people. And if someone already has um, a condition, like a health condition that, say, it's going to 
be with them forever, it doesn't mean that they can't be healthy. Mm. Um, you know, you can still find your own healthy, and I think that's really important to see where you sit with with all of that. Um, it's not a black and white thing, or you know, you're healthy or unhealthy. Um, and with athletes, it's sort of the same thing. There's so many messages about you know you have to be this way and always pushing and get your performance and, and all that. And a lot of those messages do have some background in truth, but it's then does it apply to me? And is that relevant to my sport even? You know, um, like CrossFit and distance running, like very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the strategies are going to be very different and things that can improve performance for one while improve the performance for the other. Um, and, and that's where you need to, to sort of separate where the messages are coming from. And I find that it's, uh, it's a difficult message or it's a difficult job for people in, say, public health to send one message mm. that it's going to fit everyone. And particularly in the sports arena, it's really knowing, okay, what is my sport? What are the requirements for my sport? Where do I want to take that? Because that's the that's the other part of it is um, the curve. It's not like a straight line. You know, some um, once you kind of get to the top of your performance, then you're going to make massive changes, or you're really going to have to put a lot of effort to a little bit of an improvement. That you know. Depending on where you are, it can make the world of a difference. But other times, that's not enough. Like it doesn't match the amount of effort you're putting in to the benefits that you're getting out of it. And you obviously work with the emotional side of eating, which I'd, I'd probably like to cover more later. But I'm I, this question's right at the forefront of my mind, so I feel the need to ask it at this point in the conversation, and that's the do you see that nutrition is sort of attacked or had the finger pointed at it by individuals when things go wrong? I sort of sometimes, I I personally see a huge benefit in understanding what nutrition means for you and how it can lead to your health and your athletic performance, whatever version of performance that is. But I do see that, say, when injuries happen or setbacks happen, that it's really quick to blame nutrition or to look for it to try and find the answers. What What are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, it's always hard to just blame one thing and it's, it can be a bit frustrating but at the same time, I actually like that it's coming up a little bit more often that nutrition is going to influence different areas of your performance that, you know, years ago people would just go, oh yeah, well, it doesn't matter. Um, so making that connection that what we eat has an impact, can have an impact. Of course, it's not the only thing, um, but it's, it's really good to know that that's that can make an an impact so that you can have a look at it and see, okay, this could be a possibility. Have I done what I need to do in this area? Yes or Mm -hmm. no? And then go from there. When you work with athletes, again, I'm I'm trying to just put myself in your shoes by putting myself back in my own shoes and when I work with my athletes, like, 
do you tend to lean one way more than the other as in one way a bit more towards fueling up for the athletic endeavor that or training that they're doing or do you think of it more as in enhancing the recovery element to gain athletic performance do you flip one way or the other or do you sort of look at it as a holistic picture just out of curiosity I look at it as a whole and the first thing I wouldn't even look at say the recovery or their performance I would look at the really the base of what they're doing the person yeah yeah exactly okay interesting you know nothing's gonna work well or for long enough if that base is not really solid and and I think we do tend to look at that picture sort of the other way around we look for all the cool things first um, and try all of them and go like it's not working or I need that edge what is it and in actual fact is that you know the base needs to be quite strong and solid <laughs> so that you can get into into the fine-tuning and then you see what the fine-tuning is, if it's, you know, maybe it's um, recovery that they're not doing well or maybe they need to uh, change their body composition or adapt their body composition or if it's um, preparing for a competition, like maybe training is going really well but the nerves of competition come up and intolerances come up with that mm-hmm. and yes, yeah, so then we should look at that particular situation. It's funny, I'm smiling and almost slightly giggling um, out of just like, I get it, I get it, because my personal wellness philosophy has evolved to the same, to to be honest, the same pathway that Mm -hmm. I sort of, I describe it as like someone needs to really work on their self and be wild. So work on the be element, the you, like what do you need in order to sustain you so that then you can progress into like you can play with this, you can learn to work out exactly where you love to um, use your skills and use your sense of health and wellness and well-being. And then on top of that, I feel like if you really love it, then you can build a performance element on top of that, whether performance means competitive or non-competitive um, is up to the individual. But that building that strong sense of self and you as a person and your health at the base of the pier or the pillar is really, really important. Um, yeah. So, yeah, really interesting yeah. That, that we're just sort of connecting on that. But so if we then look at, at your industry, and I, again, I will come back to your work with the CrossFit team mm-hmm. of athletes because I think it could be really interesting. But what, what frightens or frustrates you in your industry at the moment if you look at it as a whole? <laughs> uh, good question. I think what frightens me is the ease of um, – misinformation being transmitted and it goes back into that idea is that part of that misinformation the the stories may have some truth to it Mm. but they have either been uh, misinterpreted or they're not applied to you and that's you know it's really easy to just do a, a google search and find all this information and get yeah, stuck into yeah. that. It feels like too there's a lot of like individuals out there promoting wellness where their study is really being done on n equals one like mm-hmm. one person and this worked for me therefore it can work for you too and but you know potentially it can but I mean I feel more confused than ever yeah you know right here right now and sometimes I wish I didn't know so much 
because when you almost when you there was an ignorance is bliss element it was easier to just sort of get on and do whereas sometimes I think it's really easy to get in that whirlpool and a bit stuck yeah um, yeah it, it is frustrating um, nutrition is not a regulated uh, profession dietetics is um, but anyone can call themselves a nutritionist yeah right and, and then it becomes really hard I mean of course, they're amazing nutritionists, um, but they're also the ones that did like a two-day course and call themselves nutritionists. And I find that it's really hard for the client to know the difference um, between them, and especially you know if there's good marketing around um, you know those those professionals, so you can get into a bit of a pickle there if you mm. don't really search for a qualified professional um, yeah absolutely yeah. and go back to the root of a lot of the sources as well and have a look at how they stack up you know on the research component of mm. them but but what new knowledge is out there that's really exciting you at the moment like maybe things that are coming to the forefront that you've become aware of like yeah where where does your sort of what ignites your spark I guess yeah um I think the the whole gut uh, research is really coming up and it's an exciting field um, there's now lots more questions there are answers to it but it's um, it's really nice to see that the more and more uh, research is coming up and, and they're being able like with, with more technology they're being able to finally study some of those um, questions in a bit more detail and analyze what your gut microbiome is and how is it affecting you and you know how it changes as you you know depending on stress and the foods that you eat how can you influence that and how that influences you back so I think that's a fascinating area yeah actually it fascinates me as well at the moment um I speak quite openly about really putting myself into sort of research project situations and, and trialing things on myself and then being able to use that to help others to navigate the complexities of um, the health well-being but also the athletic pathways. And one of the things that has come to light for me has been um, sort of missing out on, on iron and zinc and part of it could be nutrition but part of it is also you know wondering about where the gut plays a role in that and um, to get some I guess fecal testing done to sort of look at the gut microbiome but that I'm kind of I've been hesitating on proceeding with it because I this, it, to me, it raises so many questions of like, if I if you pay the three hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is to go and do that, like, how quickly is that changing anyway? Um, you know, and if you test it now, and is it the same in a week's time when your diet's been slightly different through that week, or if you make complex changes and really like focusing on making some changes, like, does that just change it instantly? I'm, I'm really curious about that whole. <laughs> world and wondered if you might be able to shed some light on that yeah um your gut microbiome will change quite quickly um you know within a few days things already start to change yeah, so you're right. right if you wanted to monitor that you would have to monitor that a little bit more frequently to see really what um, changes are happening and it can for now it's still quite an expensive mm. um, exercise i'm hoping that 
this will become more mainstream and you will get, um, you know, more accessible. Um, so that you could do tests more often or use that as just another tool in your toolbox, you know, not just say, okay, this is what my bacteria is, but this is what my bacteria is, this is what my blood tests are telling me, this is how I'm feeling, this is what my performance is doing, uh, this is my body composition. So you look at all So it's another tool in your toolkit, effectively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, A lot of it is still with the information that we get from um, a gut microbiome test. Um, Because there's still a lot of questions rather than answers, you might say, okay, well, I have a lot of this bacteria. Great, well, how do I influence that? Well, we don't quite know yet. Mm -hmm. So it might... It might give you some information that you can't really action okay. so much in any way. Um, Can you see though red flags in in doing the gut microbiome testing? So would you recommend it um, to individuals so that you can at least go, well, there's a lot of A in your gut versus Z and we really want more Z? Or, you know, is it not that simple? Um, I wouldn't recommend it as sort of a first step. Mm-hmm. I think there's... Because everything is connected in a way, you know, our gut and how we feel and how the nutrients that we're absorbing and how our performance is going and what our weight is doing and so many things like that, so that um, we can get those signals from other um, mm-hmm. areas mm-hmm. and not need to know which specific bacteria it is and how we want to see that change. Um, but it is, again something else that we can do. I, I have asked for a few of my clients to do that test, and um, but it's only after we've looked at many other things and then it's like, okay, well, let's get let's deeper, uh, dig a little bit deeper and see what else we can find. Do you have a sense or understanding of where that appearance of intolerances rises from in that stressful period leading up to events? Because I've actually had a number of clients who are having similar challenges where things can be completely normal. They can go out and even replicate a race in training and not have any symptoms or symptomatics and then you get closer into the event and suddenly, yeah, things unravel effectively. I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to put that. Um, is, is that a gut microbiome thing or is it more of a stress pathway challenge? I mean, I'm curious in that well Yeah, as well. I mean, definitely the stress is going to lower your threshold. I'm, you know, we, we're all going to deal with food differently and at different times as well. So the more stressed you are, the less food you're going to tolerate. And that doesn't matter what microbiome you have like that's that's always going to be an issue Um, there have been some research I think the guys from Monash are doing a lot more research into the gut and long distance running and how different foods are going to affect you differently Um, and that yeah so that's a lot to do with the FODMAP um, foods and Mm -hmm. sort of following a lower FODMAP while you're um Competing or just a few days before that can help you to have better results, um, less gut issues while while you're running. So that's a bit of a 
hopeful area there so that you, you feel that you have a little bit more control over what you guys are going to do because for a lot of people you can feel a bit surprising. Yeah. And, yeah. So I guess then taking that, um, that can show you the importance of getting the right psychology and emotional state before major competition um, to help eliminate some of the distress that athletes can experience with gut problems during events, particularly long-distance runners, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, do you see any other avenues of um, enhancing performance with an increased knowledge about gut flora and microbiome just out of interest? Um, yeah, I mean, you can always look in terms of um, the nutrients that you're absorbing and how much yeah, how much of those nutrients you are effectively absorbing. Um, again, the same thing with, with distance running. Like definitely the stress is going to play a big role, but if it's something that starts to happen when you're competing but also when you're training, mm. um, then looking into what the gut is doing is also going to influence yeah. your results there. So if we then go back to the work that you were doing um, with the athletes that you've worked with and maybe with the CrossFit athletes as mm-hmm. well, um, were there any big traps that you you feel athletes as a whole are falling into, like some major red flags that potentially the listeners on our podcast could be learning from so that we're not, we're not having to go through the whole trial and error phase and make the same mistakes? Yeah. Um, there's two... Two main issues that um, I came across quite often. One was athletes, again, falling into fads and not uh, finding things that was not necessarily effective for them. One that I remember, especially with with CrossFit, was the whole low-carbohydrate diet. Um, I don't like to call it a bad in a way because again it's something that for a lot of people it can be beneficial depending on, on how you're doing and what um, issues they're having but for a lot of those athletes it was the last thing they needed and I was seeing them and, and a lot of them would have said to me on their first appointments like I've tried this low carb thing and I'm sucking at it and everything is so hard and my performance went down and you know so that clearly didn't work for them so it was finding a diet that would actually work for them and increase those carbohydrates back but without uh, being crazy with the the carbohydrates because I think that's the other part of um, what happens with nutrition is sometimes we look too deep into a nutrient um, and we forget to kind of step aside and look into the big picture. So we fast to say, well, fats are good or bad, or carbohydrates are good or bad, when you need to look at where is this carbohydrate coming from, mm-hmm. what else is this carbohydrate coming with, you know, what other nutrients are coming with this carbohydrate, how processed this was, how um, this carbohydrate is going to be digested different from this other one, um, you know, so there's a lot more nuances to it rather than going super deep into a macronutrient and going, this is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's a big trap that we'll get into. Have you 
just out of curiosity, and you don't have to answer this question if it's not diplomatic, but found many athletes where the low carbohydrate really is working for them. Yeah. 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 And in the, is it more in that endurance world that you're seeing the successes? Um, the most successes I saw with the lower carbohydrate, it's um, in they're not necessarily super competitive. It's like there's a it's the recreative athletes that sort of you know starting to get into training and. The performance is, they can see an improvement, but it's not those like two seconds, three seconds mm-hmm. that we can fine tune at the end. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not for everyone, mm. but I've, I've worked with some athletes that, that helped them. Am I being, am I crossing too many lines by asking whether or not low carbohydrate is something you would recommend or is it more if some if an athlete's already exploring it that you will continue to I guess work alongside them to negotiate some of the avoiding the pitfalls of of mm. I guess the restrictive element of these diets mm. um I would recommend but in the same time I don't have a specific okay well this is the low the low carbohydrate diet and this is how you follow it um, there's quite a range of, you know, what a low carbohydrate diet would look like, mm-hmm. and it could be what is low carbohydrate for an athlete. It can be very different from what is a low carbohydrate for someone who's sedentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for someone who's sedentary, yeah. for example, they would be having say say if they have like seventy grams, um, that is definitely within that low carbohydrate range. But you could also have someone that relative to what the, the amount of exercise they're doing mm. um, and they're eating over 200 grams and that's still low compared to to their needs or to, you know, how much they're That's using. really interesting because I feel that this argument has become a little bit too black and white just from my own research that mm. it's sort of like you have to keep it under X. But, you know, everyone does different loads of training. Everyone has different amounts of energy they put out also in their professional or just personal lives, you know, whether you're chasing two-year-olds around or whether you're working like, you know, my husband retail on his feet all day, every day, clocking up a number of steps. Like I feel that it isn't, I can see where, where it is so hard and complex to talk generically about these issues because everyone is different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it can be a bit frustrating sometimes that that's the message that, you know, everyone's different and there is no perfect X number. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what I found that first um, when mm. I went to uni. It's like, what? You mean I'm not going to, there's no perfect diet that you're just going to hand the sheet over here and I can send it to everyone else? It's just, I mean, it's the same in the coaching world, you know, the... It's really hard because, I mean, I definitely have recently put out more generic planners but the idea is that they're an educational thing and that you really need to be able to take a step back from the the what's written there and think about which of the choices that are presented at me is appropriate for me rather than like there's just this one size fits all training program to 100 kilometer distance yeah exactly that's yeah that's exactly right is okay well you know you can consider lower carbohydrate being 
below a certain number, but that is relative to the amount of work that you're doing and mm-hmm. yeah, your needs. What successes have you found that you've had working with athletes? You know, again, it's a big, broad question. You can take it wherever it feels appropriate to you. But, um, you know, if we've talked about maybe some of those traps, particularly in that low carbohydrate, what what might be some of the areas where you've seen great success? Yeah, so definitely uh, working with athletes that were open to change and experiment with, um, Mm. you know, changing their diet um you know if you think okay well i've I tried this one low carb paleo whatever didn't work for me well how about we try something else so we look into aspects of this or the way of eating that might fit you and not having to come up with the label for it you know you don't go from paleo to vegan to uh you know low fat whatever it's finding that combination that works for you without having to restrict yourself into a label. Um, Where do you start that process though, Juliana? Like, even if you, if an individual is listening to that, this and thinking maybe this is something I need to explore more, I mean, I, like I'm listening to it thinking I'd love to know what's right for me as a person as opposed to having to follow one of the, the dietary trends. Where do you yeah. start? Um well, it's looking at what's working and what's not working, um, but also looking in terms of your your values and your goals. What is it that you want to get out of um, your training and your diet and so that you can decide sort of which way to go. But the first thing I would say is yeah, looking at what's working and what's not working. What happens if your values and your goals collide a little bit? I mean, ideally they don't. Ideally your goals come from your values. But uh, an example of this might be, for instance, I've been vegetarian, mostly plant-based since I was about 15. Constantly have problems with iron. And I find it really hard to go back to the concept of eating meat having lived by this principle for a very long period of time so like how how do you negotiate that as well is it that that I kind of need to take my own medication sort of I call it suck it up princess like (laughs) um you know or are there ways that you can negotiate those as well because I yeah I don't feel like values and goals always actually align Mm. I find that it's Oh, it's looking a little bit deeper into that and seeing what is it that you want um, to get out of, say, being a vegetarian. Like, again, you've put a label right there, (laughs) I am vegetarian, and with that comes the rules of being a vegetarian. This is what you do. Um, Now, it would be, and I don't want to contest your reasons for being a vegetarian, but I just want you to think about what were the reasons for, you, for being becoming a vegetarian? You know, was it health? Was it the environment? Was you know taste? Was money? Whatever. So that you can look at those smaller uh, or those sort of items mm. and expand those and and see if that label that you put to yourself 
it's actually delivering all you need to do. And if is there another way to get to that um, dot point there? Mm. So I'll give you an example. Let's say, um, so you say vegetarian because health. And you have uh, deep fried chips every day because it's a vegetarian, there's no meat there. Um, is that the same? Like, you know, what is that bringing to your health um, basket of become, being a vegetarian? And you go, okay, well, there are. I mean, the, the chips ones are sort of an obvious one that we go like, well, not great. But say if you were having lots of processed um, vegetarian burgers, is this really a healthier option than having a piece of, um, you know, kangaroo? Yeah. Yeah, I can hear that, and I can hear that across so many arms of the nutritional spectrum like I'm thinking gluten I'm thinking sugar I'm thinking low carbohydrate you can see how those embedded rules within those dietary trends could you can adopt them and you can adopt them so subconsciously you don't even know that you have them and you don't even know why sometimes you are doing what you're doing I mean there are a lot of people who will be like, I know why I do what I do but I think there's a lot of us who still carry these embedded programs that maybe aren't serving us and Mm -hmm. how often is it really that we get the chance to sit down with someone like yourself and really look at why you're doing what you're doing I mean like I can feel my toes tingling right now (laughs) I'd really like to work on this process with you um so is there anything like that right now you're finding success in in working with the athletic community is it is it that is it like the breaking down the sort of the psychology behind the nutrition patterns or is there something else that you might be working on um yeah it really depends on the athletes um, i've been working a lot with younger athletes at the moment and the whole it was very interesting changing from seeing a lot of the CrossFit athletes who were in their at least mid-20s to late-20s, um, early 30s. They were working full-time and, and training on top of that and some, you know, some of them had families and things like that and had to cook and take food for them to work and da-da-da to a younger 16-year-old athlete that is still at home and it's sort of bound by what the, the parents are cooking and they might not have any skills in, in cooking yet and their, um, um, their performance or their abilities are still developing. So you can't really add like the super pointy end of, of that pyramid in terms of, okay, well, this is going to make you a star because they're still developing their skills and they need to practice. So the nutrition then needs to f- focus on supporting that process and supporting the growth and the development and also adding all those skills of, okay, well, what if your mum doesn't want to cook? What's happening? And teaching them basic kitchen skills 
You can see that that situation developing though even through the adult population where maybe there's boundaries around what the kids will eat or there's boundaries around who cooks in the house or the fact that they are still exploring where they want to go with their athletic performance, whatever, again, whatever that performance means. Is it, you know, more an adventure-based thing? Is it, you know, really striving for high-level performance, you know, making teams and everything that sits in the middle? I, like I feel that argument could go right through, hey. Yeah, yeah, it could. I mean, um, the, all those sort of the day-to-day how is it that you're going to make it work um, skills and, and preparation and commitment, they yeah, can go from a younger athlete to a master's athlete. So maybe then we, could we start to dig down a little bit? Uh, you mentioned that before, actually before we went on to, on to podcasting, that whilst you can't request blood tests that you actually are um, willing to look at them and to to explore maybe what how somebody's going with their nutrition through the blood results. Mm-hmm. What do you look for when you are thinking about more the athletic population and trying to maximise their well-being and, and health mm-hmm. to allow for performance? Yeah, so there's lots of different things that we can look, not only with the blood test. So with the blood test, I would look at... Um, you know, the liver function and the iron levels, B12, vitamin D. Um, you look at, um, yeah, a whole range of, of markers there. Um, iron as well. I don't know if I mentioned that one. Really. Yeah. <laughs> but you can also look in, say, a, a body composition scan and see their bone density and their, their muscle mass and what's happening in that regard because going back to one of your questions about the traps that I saw a lot of athletes doing so I told you about the carbohydrates mm. the other one is is not eating enough and that's so common and it's a, it's a lot more common than than we would expect um, and particularly particularly with women it's easier to see the signs um, in terms of the yes. losing the amenorrhea exactly yeah and the periods and then the bones are not yeah. um, strong anymore and um, but with males as well I mean, in terms of stress fractures and time um, that you take to heal from an injury um, all those things would start to indicate that there is something going wrong there that you're not getting enough mm-hmm. energy and it's quite tricky to recognize that in the beginning because our body, it's, it tends to sort of shut down some areas, for example, uh, the reproductive system because it's like it's quite energy consuming. But it still gives energy to exercise even if it's low in, uh, in that sort of energy budget there. Mm. Because the body doesn't know that you're doing that for pleasure and that you really just want to go for a yes, run. that makes sense. It has no idea and it thinks, well, okay, well, if, if Penny needs to run away from that lion, well, let's go. 
you know, there's no... And shut down the hormone or the reproductive exactly. system to because allow you to keep doing that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. What other systems out of curiosity become compromised? Well, it's, it's a whole range and they're all sort of um, integrated as well. So, say, with the, home, uh, the reproductive system, the, the hormonal hormone production starts to be compromised and that influences the bones. Um, but also things like, you know, your nails and your hair, um, even your mental capacity to mm-hmm. think and make good decisions is compromised, uh, which can be a bit of a, a bummer there because you, you do need your brain to, to think about and make good decisions. Yeah, it's really interesting because... Um a close family member to me recently has been experiencing the symptoms, signs and symptoms of overtraining. Mm-hmm. But when you look at training load alone, you would probably it wouldn't be enough for me to really point a red flag. Like it could be adjusted, tweaked, tailored, but it's it's yeah. not a red flag in alone. But when you add it to the the work levels the behind the scenes kind of capacity to tolerate stress it becomes more of a holistic issue yes and the other way around as well because you can look at someone that is under eating for their exercise but compared to their sedentary friends they're still eating quite a good amount Mm -hmm. Um, and i find that that can be a little bit confusing to a lot of people but if you know if they're comparing say if they train and then go to work and compare what they're eating to what their work colleagues eat it's like oh man i'm eating so much more yeah, yeah. Than those guys oh, yeah there is no way i'm under eating um that is but, really hard and nutrition is it feels like it's becoming more and more social element mm. now am i correct in saying that yeah, it's quite social yeah, yeah. of course so it, it's yeah. hard i guess not to judge, I'm, I'm interested. In, I'm actually interested in the the low eating, and I hear exactly what you're saying. That sometimes it's easier to almost pick it in the women, not the men, because their hormonal processes are a little bit more evident by the menstrual cycle. But it feels like there's quite a few people who don't appear to eat a lot, do appear to do the training and the exercise, and still maintain a normal or even slightly above normal body weight is that is that a normal thing is that maybe i've misinterpreted that or yeah sorry i'm quite curious on that one as well yeah so it's again another tricky one that you don't necessarily link body weight to um, energy deprivation Mm -hmm. because it's also it's energy, but it's also lots of nutrients as well. So depending on, you know, as soon as you start training, you don't just use more new, um, energy; you use a lot of more nutrients as well. Mm-hmm. So you can fill yourself up with foods that are high in energy but low in nutrients, and that's already creating a bit of a discrepancy between your needs and what your body is getting. Um, has that then developed the understanding around amenorrhea for women? We, we actually just had Juliet Thompson from the Butterfly Foundation on the podcast and we, we were talking a lot about um, 
the signs and symptoms predominantly around the women and the amenorrhea and I mean I've experienced it myself in my past yeah. and um, it was always raised that you know you need to get your body weight up mm-hmm. yeah. but even getting the body weight up sometimes that didn't change the amenorrhea status Mm-hmm. So what, what's your knowledge then around that redevelopment of getting the reproductive system back into action? Is it just literally caloric intake? Is it nutrients? Is it a bit of all? I think it's a combination of right. energy and the right nutrients as well. Um, and when you are sort of reprogramming um, your body to kind of restart that, you actually do need to quite a lot more energy than if Mm. you were just maintaining it okay so even yes if so it can feel like it's a lot more and you can't maintain that but it's because your body needs that even extra bit to kick start it okay yeah so it's kind of like uh when you prime you know the the uh the lawnmower you got to prime it and then you can run it on a lower throttle is that correct yeah yeah Yeah. okay interesting yeah it's i really do find that a very interesting area it's harder for the males than actually had a number of males who've um, had hormone system like particularly the reproductive systems that have effectively shut down Mm -hmm. and testosterone and growth hormone obviously just so vital as well for an athlete athlete in their recovery um so you can if i guess if it's someone's listening and they're concerned about it some simple blood testing can quite quickly show you where your reproductive hormones are sitting yeah yeah and you can also um you know compare track your energy intake for a few days and compare that with your expenditure and see how how different that is. Mm-hmm. That's another quick way of checking where you're going. Cool. Can I then just ask you some questions that I think listeners might be interested in just around some key nutrients and, and thought processes in nutrition, so going a bit more specific. I wouldn't mind actually bringing back the iron one quickly. Mm-hmm. If someone is aware that iron is something, I mean, we all know that we need iron for the transport of oxygen around the body and obviously particularly important in athletes, particularly important in women who have menstrual cycles or have blood loss, Um, also important for ultra and distance runners who are stamping on their feet a lot and popping their blood cells. So it is a big one. But is the only – can you – I've heard contradictory advice about whether plant sources of iron – can actually be as absorbed as effectively as heme iron, so mm-hmm. iron from meat. Just yeah. wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, there is quite a heap of things that is going to influence absorption of iron. Um, the animal version of it, the heme iron, is um, easily more easily absorbed. Okay. Um, but things that, for example, the body being low in iron makes it, better at absorbing iron, okay. which is kind of a good thing. Yeah. Um, using animal iron in conjunction with heme iron, so non-heme iron, so like if you add plant and animal at the mm-hmm. same time, you use more of both. Mm-hmm. Um, vitamin C is another one that helps with absorption, and that can come from vegetables. So, you know, if you have broccolis and capsicum and parsley and things like that, that mm-hmm. will help 
absorb um, more out of the plant. Do you think that if you were just talking about maintenance mode that someone could get enough iron from plant sources without supplementation or if you are yeah. vegan vegetarian and you need to supplement? No, I think you do, you can. Um, yeah. Particularly if you're vegetarian, there's still plenty of, um, of sources that, okay. that you can absorb and it's also looking in terms of okay if you if you are eating a, a varied diet and you're looking into those plant sources and the levels are dropping like then you look at the gut as well again go back to that to say well is there some inflammation is there something else that's preventing that absorption um, another one is so calcium is a big one that impacts mm -hmm. absorption um, and so sometimes if you if you have a, a calcium rich meal with an iron rich meal they can compete mm -hmm. so it's better to look at them separate and say well this is my calcium rich meal and this is my iron rich meal mm. yeah so you have absorption that way the other day i i actually had iron tested and like i said it you know it had dropped to some degree but it did say that this could be masked by inflammation. Mm -hmm. Do you know why inflammation masks iron? No, something we'll both do some more research <laughs> on. Yeah, I was curious. It was the first time I'd ever seen that sort of written down. Like, yeah. you know, um, so interesting one. What about zinc? Uh, I work Sally Chapman has also mm -hmm. been on the podcast, and um, she's a general practitioner, really interested in nutrition and nutritional medicine. She says that anyone who lives a busy, active lifestyle should be taking zinc because our soils are so deficient in it. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, second opinion, um, what your thoughts are around zinc. It's, yeah, zinc's yeah. another one that um, we need to look at. And my views on supplements is that you do as much as you can with food and then if you end up having to take a supplement, you're taking the minimal dose just to get you to the levels uh -huh. that you need to be. So there's no real benefit in overloading vitamins or nutrients, but just matching your needs. Mm -hmm. So looking at food first and then adding a supplement if you need to. Um, the other thing with, um, with nutrients that we're talking about, the more you... Although you can get all the nutrients from food, the more you restrict your diet, the more responsibility in a way you have to make sure that you're getting everything. Mm -hmm. So, And sometimes this can be a good thing and sometimes it can be a bad thing. If you don't have any restrictions and you eat everything and anything, um, you get into the trap of you become lazy. Because like, yeah, okay, you know, I eat everything, I eat meat, so surely my iron is fine, surely my zinc is okay. But then when you look at it, you go, well, you've been having chicken nuggets and fish fingers um, and sausages. There's not much there. Mm -hmm. uh, so whereas if you say, well, I don't eat any red meat, I must look into other sources mm -hmm. of iron and zinc and things like that can make you a bit more accountable yeah so yeah. no matter um, your restrictions in terms of you know, intolerances or religious or just ethical choices whatever it is 
um, or no restrictions at all, is really paying attention to where the nutrients are coming from because mm. a lot of the foods now, um, you know, foods, inverted commas there, provide a lot of energy but not a lot of nutrients. Has hydroponic agriculture changed changed the game for you even as a dietitian being able to recommend certain foods to get your zinc or your iron or your... Um, I find that um, one good thing, especially here in Tassie, to look for is to look for the local growers and find what's in season. And then that's a really good way of making sure that you're getting, you're finding all your nutrients in an easier, easier way. Okay. And just so one more question on zinc, like why is it so important? I feel like maybe I missed that step in that question uh, and why is it so important for the active individual? Um, well, zinc is, oh, you got me there with the specifics of where... Broadly specific. <laughs> zinc comes from. But the thing is also that we lose a lot of zinc um, in sweat and as we exercise, any sort of body fluid, um, you know, you go to the toilet, you lose zinc. So it's one of those nutrients that don't stay um, stuck in your body, mm -hmm. like you're, you're always losing it and you need to replace it. Um, so it's, it's not the same as some, some of the fat-soluble vitamins that you can store and use for a rainy day. Um, with zinc, it's like it's always you're always kind of catching up to it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And can you just clarify, if you can, the um, omega three versus omega six debate that's around at the moment? Yeah. Uh, my understanding was that it was it's important to have them in a, in a nice ratio of enough omega three to enough omega six. And then more recently, I've just seen something about how they now think omega six helps to protect against heart disease, which was a really I don't know, it came, came out of just really recently, that study. Yeah. What, what, what are they? Why are they important? And what, where's the ratio or the concept sitting now? Yeah, yeah. So I think the omega-6 and omega-3 also goes back to that idea of, you know, you just zooming into a specific fat and, and either blame or make it the, the saviour of everything. There's kind of step back and look at the bigger picture. So omega-3 and omega-6 are both essential fats, so fats that we must eat to survive um, and we can't produce by ourselves. Okay. So we do need to bring some from our diet. Um, omega-3 has uh, the potential to be anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. and omega-6 has the potential to be inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So again, yes, it's all about those ratios. One-to-one -one ratio is, is pretty good, and but even a little bit more omega-6, like one-to-four ratio, even one-to-eight sometimes, it, it can still be um, a good ratio mm -hmm. to support health. Um, the thing is that if you look at where that omega-3, uh, the omega-6 comes from. So if you look at, say, nuts, we'll have some omega-6. But also, vegetable oils and processed foods also have a lot of omega-6 because of, um, yeah, the 
the processing of those um, seed oils. So when you look at, say, um, the Australian diet, I think last time I checked was about 1 omega-3 to 20 omega-6. That's the average of what people are consuming. Yes. Yeah, right. That's huge. Yeah, that's pretty huge. And also, if you were an adolescent, so if you were eating a lot of processed foods, that ratio jumped, I think, 1 to 40. Yikes. So that is massive. What repercussions do you, do you think that would you would see if you had that balance like way out? You know, in that circumstance, one to forty. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's that's showing a, a lot of things there. It's showing that your diet is a complete mess in a way. Um, probably other nutrients are also missing. Um, but that risk of adding to that inflammation is is pretty big. Um, and can that inflammation play out literally uh, in, say, the circumstance I've had recently was, you know, a bit of an Achilles, to, you know, they weren't terrible, they're flaring up a little bit. Could you be almost, like, wondering how much diet is involved in that process and retaining that inflammation in the body? Or, yeah, like, how far do you see that inflammation in the body? coming from a nutrient source. Yeah, I mean, what you could look in terms of an injury, there's, there's always some acute inflammation that you would expect normally as part mm. of the healing process. Um, but your diet can interfere with that and make it last longer so that it's it's actually harder to heal over yeah, yeah. and heal from that. Um, you would also then need to look at all the nutrients that you need to get that recovery happening. And if you're having a diet that is showing that it's super high in processed foods, well, those nutrients are not coming, mm -hmm. which again makes it even harder um, mm -hmm. to heal from that. So, so with the whole, you know, omega three, omega six, it's not just going well. Omega six is terrible for you and don't have it but it's looking at where is it coming from and would I always I always like to think if you if you were eating you know completely unprocessed like if there was no food industry in a way would you be able to find that naturally mm -hmm. so even with nuts what I'd say is okay you want to have some nuts as a snack or something or get them shelled and and go and take the time to break those things and then grab them out of the shell and eat them that way and you see how much less you're going to eat and how much more time you're going to spend eating those nuts um, compared to eating almond meal everything or nut butters everything mm -hmm. um, also compared to then getting vegetable oils out of, you know, corn husks and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, not just blaming the type of fat, but looking where is it coming from and why is it coming, why is it so different from the omega-3? Um, yeah. It's really interesting. And then just, I know I'm watching time and I, I don't want to take too much of your precious time, but if we're on fats, 
Where do you sit with coconut oil? It, I'm, this one is has been out there as the newest, greatest, best thing. It's <laughs> now getting pointed because of the saturated fat content mm. and that we should be completely avoiding it. Yeah. I'm guessing moderation, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah. I mean... Uh, there's, there's a lot to discuss on the coconut oil issue. I think uh, a lot of the marketing has uh, made it an amazing food that cures everything and you can use everywhere. But it's just one more oil mm-hmm. to, to sort of think about it. Um, I would use that sometimes in, in some cooking, depending on what taste I would like um, to get out of, out of that. It is a more stable fat, so you know you can cook with that and you can use it at higher temperatures. But you know it's just another food in the way. Okay, um, I think yeah. that's pretty fair. <laughs> uh, and the final one is just the sugar debate mm-hmm. that came in full force, and I think many of us probably went, "Wow, yeah, really got to think about this." And um, I found it's been harder to to follow a low sugar diet, especially as an athlete. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts around the sugar debate? Um, I think it's again it goes back to the same with the fat debate. Is where is this sugar coming from? Okay. How much do you need? What other nutrients are coming with that? Um, you know, a lot of people don't even know where the sugar comes from if they if you look at some of the seasoning in in things like dry seasoning or sauces and muesli bars that look quite healthy breakfast cereals um, excess fruit like all those things will carry quite a lot of sugar that it's on top of the obvious sources if you do decide to have something that's obviously sweet um, and that brings that number you know quite high so it's looking at okay where is the sugar coming from how much is it that I need what time do I need to have this sugar you know mm-hmm. um, yeah all those things are going to to influence that so there's no what is low sugar anyway how much is it that you need to eat yeah, and this, yeah. So the same thing went with the whole fat. You know, if you think of, um, I don't know, if you think of saturated fat, what comes to mind? Uh, butter, yeah. <laughs> coconut oil. Yeah, yeah, and avoidance generally because yeah. that's the message that's been preached. Yeah, cholesterol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like with saturated fat, I mean, what comes to mind to me if I think about it um, generally would be processed foods mm-hmm. and again I can't just say well this processed food here that has no nutrients left and it's highly refined and you know all that also has saturated fat that's the problem mm-hmm. um, it's looking at the whole what is this food um, you know yeah very much so. I mean, I feel like there's so much more I would love to, 
to tap into. I feel like we haven't even broached into the emotional eating and food psychology side, but I, I actually feel like I might hold it and, and nab you for another podcast if yeah, we can sure. because I think it's just too big a topic to cover. I wanted today to be more just a bit of a refresh and yeah. an opportunity to to see where your strengths lie as um, someone who can assist us. And I know that you've been starting to put together quite a few online programs with mm-hmm. one coming up in April. Can you explain a little bit around what that can offer our community? Yeah, so that program is fully online. It goes for six weeks. And the reason why I decided to come up with it is that find that a lot of people need that base again looking at that base of nutrition in terms of well there's so much information out there what is it that I need to focus on Um, but also navigating how is it that I'm going to now shop because we all have that idea that eating healthier is more expensive so how is it that I'm going to put these things into place What about my partner or my kids that don't want to eat as I do? Like, what do I do with them? How to navigate through those barriers? Again, understanding, all right, I knew I should be doing this, but why is it that I'm not doing this? So we um, tap into the emotional eating as well. and So it really gives a good base for people to, to navigate that sort of, that starting point and even going back at it and thinking, Am I missing something here? One of those structural parts. Um, and then every week we catch up, we answer questions, we discuss you know, topics and mini challenges or activities for the week so that we're all making small changes towards that bigger goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess you're really looking at that like behavior change as well as knowledge education sort of development yeah you you have to combine the two yeah just having the knowledge is not enough like you need to know how to apply that and and identify what your barriers are for that Um, I find it quite common actually that I find you know oh yes I I know what I should be doing but I'm just not doing it and Sometimes it's actually, well, hang on, I think your knowledge is a bit, um, we need to update that like what's changed, but also is understanding, okay, well, if you, now you do know, what is it that it's, it's coming up and how are we going to tackle that? Yeah, and I think for our listeners, I reckon there are a lot of people out there who are going, yep, I think I need that, yep, I think I need that. And it, there, there's a lot of us walking around with almost like too full a head and some, you know, what you're talking about, about simplifying that and working out what do you really need to know. And that to me sounds like huge benefit for mm. people and I especially think athletes because athletes tend to be relatively curious souls who are always looking for extra room for improvement. And, and by athletes, I mean anyone who lives an athletic lifestyle who's yeah. looking to get the most out of that, whether that's performance or not. I think you still call yourself an athlete. So I could really see the benefit in, in your program yeah. um, and extensions of that as well <laughs> over time. Uh, if there was one thing you would tell us to do, it's probably not a fair question as in you probably don't like telling people what to do but would encourage people to do, what would that be, Juliana? 
that's a very broad question. I know it's big, <laughs> but is there is there something, for instance, that maybe you have really you are noticing that you're doing more and you're seeing success for you as a person that you'd be like, oh, I'd just love to like encourage people to have a think about. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that is really important is to know where your food's coming from mm. and what is it that, what you're calling food, how far away from the original food it is. Like, I think that's... Uh, that's a big point because as you start to look into how much that food has been processed, um, you start to look into how many nutrients and I'm, I'm getting off this, you know, are the ratios uh, helpful and is this making me feel full or not? Uh, is this feeding what type of bacteria? Um, how is this affecting my mood and what my sugar levels are doing? So you can go like get into a range of issues just by looking, being more aware of the, the types of food, where it's coming from. Hmm. Do you have a favourite meal of the day? Favourite meal of the day? Uh, I think lunch. Mm. Yeah. You weren't expecting that. No, I wasn't. I was just... <laughs> I just I, I wasn't I was selectively listening because I was just going I don't like lunch. <laughs> so, then we collide. Could be worse things to collide on. Yeah. Lunch just because of the plethora of choice that lunch poses or um, I like lunch because it's a nice break mm-hmm. from a busy day and it's something that I know it's going to influence how my afternoon is going to pan out. So if, you know, if I have a crappy lunch or if I don't have lunch at all, then the second half of the day is going to be pretty sad. So it's a pretty important one that way. That shows a lot of insight because I think a lot of us would just grab and go eat lunch at the computer, um, you know, probably overlook its importance and significance. So yeah, yeah, yes. I think it's big um, culturally as well. Like we, dinner is the main meal for a lot of people, and it's the meal that then yes, okay, you've been through the whole day, and here you are now. You can actually sit down and eat and you know, chill. Um, with our insulin sensitivity and our um, capacity to deal with food is a lot better in the middle of the day than it is in early morning or late in the evening. So, you know, that's the time that our body actually wants more food. Really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot around the lunchtime and how it's going to influence the rest of our afternoon also shows us in a way a little bit of um, self-care and how much importance we're giving to our time and how we feel if we just you know not look after ourselves we might just yeah grab whatever and eat on the run and not pay attention to that and it's like okay that's showing me that you're not taking your you know 15 minutes out of your day 
half an hour of your day just to sit down and eat, lunch. eat and nourish your body and, yeah. um, you know, yeah, get those nutrients in. Brilliant. Uh, and just, just a bit of fun, but do you have a favorite food, last meal on the planet that you would have, <laughs> something that really makes your toes tingle at the moment? Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't think of anything particular. Yeah, there's just so many things that I really enjoy. Yeah, I'm a bit the same, I must admit, these days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I am looking forward to um, my lunch, actually. <laughs> I did make um, a frittata last night and um, oh, it was... It looked really nice and, you know, I'm not a very good cook, so when things work, I'm super proud and I'm really proud of my frittata last night. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, Juliana, thank you so much for the conversation today. I, I would love to follow up with you. I will say it on the record to follow up with you on the psychology of nutrition because I think it's a fascinating topic, probably a big topic. Yeah, that would be um, awesome. And you'll definitely be guiding me through that conversation. But I feel like today we've covered quite a few things that even if it's just trying to encourage people to take a step back and actually think about why you're doing what you're doing. And that was my take-home message today was to really look at, I guess, some of the rules that I've set myself and, you know, mm. where have they come from? How long ago did they yeah. present themselves? And yeah. are they really serving my needs? Because is there a smarter way that I could be thinking around this issue or topic? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes those things may have served you in the past. So it's not that they didn't serve you. They may have. But now is, you know, have, have things changed and yeah. we would go with that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Juliana. And um, we'll look forward to another conversation soon. Yeah, absolutely.